Gospel of John is a book that many people read to become acquainted with the life of Jesus. Our modern assumption is that the author was focused on evangelism, telling unbelievers who Jesus is with the goal of converting them to a saving faith. But I'm going to suggest something completely different. And it's a way to rethink the Gospels that might keep you up at night thinking about the implications. Are you ready? Most of the people who interacted with Jesus in the Gospel of John, they were already going to heaven before they met him. But I thought the only way to get to heaven was to believe in Jesus. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case for those living in the first century context. All that and a whole lot more in this week's episode. Welcome to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I'm Greg Hall, and this is episode three, Rethinking Conversion in John chapter one. And it's in this episode that we'll be discussing something that I cover more fully on the RethinkingScripture.com website. If you navigate there, you'll find I have outlined several rethinking projects. One of those projects is for rethinking conversion. Another big one that I'm working on right now is rethinking rest. I've written a manuscript for a book and I'm shopping for a publisher and that's a fun process. (laughs) So hopefully that book will come out soon. I've got a whole nother website, rethinkingrest.com that you can go visit as well for more information on that. Just wanted to let you know those projects are out there. I'm currently working on several of them. And today's topic, conversion. We're ready to rethink it. And that's what we're going to do today in John chapter 1. But we got a little bit of a setup to do. So today we're looking at the topic of conversion. I'd like to begin that setup with some material out of a book written by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Dr. Rodmacher uh, passed away back in 2014 but he did spend a lifetime in academia. So he was uh, the president of uh, Portland Seminary in Portland, Oregon for 25 years. Actually ran across Dr. Rodmacher in my master's program. He uh, taught a few classes, and one of those was focused on salvation. And he actually had a book that came out in 2007, and it was entitled Salvation. And the basic premise of the book is that Uh, When we go to the scriptures and we read the word saved, we've brought that into our culture in a certain way. (laughs) If somebody asks you, when did you get saved? Well, what are they asking? They're asking, when was it that you went from a person of unfaith to a person of faith? And in theological terms, we call that justification. That's the process of becoming justified before God through faith. And oftentimes what we do when we read the scriptures is we assume because of our modern lens and because that's been the focus of our modern lens for a couple of generations at least, we assume the word saved in the scriptures means justification, salvation. And it does at some points. But in the book, uh, Rodmarker talks about how the word saved, the Greek word sozo, The word saved, if you just look at its context and how it's used throughout the New Testament, there are a number of different ways that it's used. Four that he highlights. Uh, One is just physical salvation. So sometimes that word sozo is used, and it's just talking about somebody didn't die physically. Okay, so that's one. 
But, but then there's three spiritual senses that he kind of outlines. And so it says here, uh, I'll just uh, read a little bit. Uh, Salvation in the spiritual sense is the most exciting and promising deliverance available to human beings. It reaches into the depths of our needs and lifts us to the highest grandeur imaginable. Spiritual salvation involves three tenses. He says there's past, present, and future. I'm just going to break in real quick. I'm not sure if you've thought about it this way in the past. You may have been giving these pieces separately. We're just going to try and tie them all together right now. So three tenses is what he talks about. He goes on to say, doctrinally, these are expressed as justification, sanctification, and glorification. But each one is a part of the broad scope of salvation. At the moment a person places his or her faith in the finished work of Christ, that individual is saved from the death-dealing penalty for sin and is declared righteous. And he gives several scriptures. So Genesis 15, 6 is one of those, Psalm 103, 12, Romans 4, 1 through 5, and Titus 3, 5. Those are all examples that he says. If you go into those scriptures, it's talking about that initial justification, salvation, where people are freed from the penalty of sin. Okay? Continuing on. Then in this present life, the believer in Christ is also being saved from the power of sin. And he gives Romans 5.10, Hebrews 7.25, James 1.21 as examples. Go ahead and go and look those up and see that those aren't talking about necessarily justification. They're talking about being saved from the power of sin in somebody's life. And he goes on to say, and he or she will be saved from the presence of sin forever in heaven. And the example from Scripture of that is Romans 13, 11, and 1 Peter 1, 9, just two examples he gives there. So he says these are three aspects of salvation, and they may be viewed this way. So past salvation is from the penalty of sin, and we call that theologically, we call that justification. The present, we're being freed or saved from the power of sin, and we call that sanctification. And the future— We are freed from the presence of sin, and we call that glorification from a theological standpoint. That from the book Salvation by Earl Rodmacher. And that just gives us a framework to begin with. Just to be able to know that when we read the word saved in the New Testament, we now have to ask the question, well, saved from what? Is it talking about an initial faith event, an ongoing faith event currently, or a future event through faith that will be a glorification? So... When we get into the book of John, and we're here in John chapter 1, the first chapter of John is really herky-jerky. And I don't know if you've read it yet, but it'd be good to just stop and take a moment and read through John chapter 1. And what you'll see is we start out with the discussion in the first few verses of uh, uh, the Logos. It introduces the idea of Christ in, in terms of the Logos. And then there's a pause, and then we hear a little bit about John the Baptist for a few verses, and then there's a pause, and then we go back to the Logos idea, and then there's a pause, and we go back to John the Baptist, and we eventually get to the, the followers of John the Baptist at the end of the chapter. As you look at it just as a whole, the whole chapter's like back and forth, back and forth. The book I'm working on, um, I've had several editors give me comments along the way, and if I had written in that manner, my editor would have told me, hey, why don't we just take all the Logos stuff and put all the Logos stuff together? <laughs> and from a flow standpoint, why don't we take all the John the Baptist stuff and kind of put that in one category? So when you see something like that in the scripture, 
and it's herky-jerky like that, you got to assume that John knew what he was doing. They didn't just do that because he was a bad writer, okay? <laughs> they had people look over this, and eventually he came to the point where he said, oh, well, this is good. This is the way I want it because it's there for a purpose, okay? I've written in this herky-jerky manner for a purpose. So when we approach the book of John, what we're really asking from a salvation standpoint is what is it that John's trying to accomplish? What type of salvation um, is he going to address when he talks about being saved, right? And that gets to more setup. <laughs> Sorry, we touched on John 1, but now we're going to go back into setup for a second. Because it's at the end of John that we really have a statement that most people think is kind of the the purpose statement of the gospel. Uh, there was a book uh, that Rod Mocker also wrote, co-wrote actually, with a Dr. Gary Derrickson. Dr. Derrickson is still a professor at Corbin University here in Salem, Oregon, where I live. And I have had the chance actually to teach as an adjunct at Corbin for a few uh, semesters. So Derrickson and Rodmacher wrote a book together in 2001. It's called The Disciple Maker, and it's based on uh, the content of the book of John. And what they did is they went back into the book of John and just asked the question, what is John talking about? What type of salvation is John talking about mostly? The conclusion that most people come to, most commentators, they would say that John is written to be evangelistic in nature. It's written to people that did not believe, trying to convince them to come to faith in Jesus. But as Rodmacher and Derrickson went back through the book, they came to the conclusion that most of the content is not talking about justification or describing justification. Most of the content that John writes about is that present tense, sanctification. It's that process after you've come to initial faith, describing how you continue in that faith. So uh, from that book, from the Disciple Maker book, a critical element in interpreting the Gospel of John is an accurate understanding of its purpose as it affects its message. Most commentators turn to John 20, 30, and 31 to determine the purpose of the Gospel. This is because John, at least, seems to be stating his purpose there. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And they go on to say, based on their understanding of John's statement, those commentators see its purpose as evangelistic. And then they spend the rest of the book basically saying, you know what, the main content of John's book is sanctification in nature and not justification, which is really interesting because that's not how we read it today. That's not how we're told to read it. It's not how a lot of the, as they said, a lot of the commentators approach the book. So as we look at John 20, 31 in a little more detail, we also need to examine that there's a textual variant. And what do I mean by textual variant? It means that the copies of John in the Greek, the oldest copies that we have, there's two different readings that come out of John 20, 31. There's a textual variant, I mean, it, it varies slightly. And in this case, it's so very slightly because it's literally just one letter. It's an S sound. And in the Greek, that just changes that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It changes it to that you may continue to believe. And you'll find this if you go into different translations in the English because they follow different 
textual traditions. So uh, all that said, without getting too technical, the purpose statement in the book of John oftentimes is read in our English translations. These things are recorded in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But about half of the text that we do have, it actually says these things are recorded that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you're piecing things together with me, based on what we've already covered, that's the difference between past and present, that you may believe initial justification, past event, point in time, or that you may continue to believe present tense, sanctification. All of that goes into the idea of what is John really talking about. And it's here where I'm going to break into an unpublished paper that Dr. Derrickson has shared with me that uh, I'm actually going to post at the website, uh, rethinkingscripture.com. So you can have access to this and download it if you'd like to. It's a paper based on the purpose statement of John, and it focuses on John 20, 31. It talks about the differences we just recognized in tenses in the textual variants. And uh, Dr. Derrickson takes it just one step further. And I'm going to take what we've put together with salvation, having three tenses and this variant in the end of John for the purpose statement. And I'm just going to suggest to you that the purpose statement in John leads us to a question. And the question is, what if this book is written to believers, people that already have a justifying faith in the original context? Who would it have been that were already justified through faith that would need to meet Jesus and be introduced to the person of Jesus? And this brings in a whole slew of ideas that you've probably never even thought about. Let me put it this way. On the day Jesus was born, there were people alive on earth that were already saved. They were already justified. They had already come to an initial faith in God that was saving them. Had they died at that moment, they would have gone to heaven. And yet they had never heard the name of Christ. There are people that even meet Jesus, and they don't know exactly who he is. But they already believe a Messiah is coming. I don't know if you've thought about it. We don't get a lot of information in the Gospels about Jesus' early life. But what we do get is some glimpses. And the people that come across this young baby, a lot of them recognize him as the fulfillment of the idea of a Messiah. And they immediately believe that that's who he is. I'm just going to suggest to you that these people didn't just come to a justification realization through faith at that moment. These people were expecting a Messiah already through faith. They had been justified through an Old Testament faith. They were Old Testament saints. And when they meet the fulfillment of the idea in which they already believe, and they're introduced to Jesus, the natural response for this group of people is to just come to believe in Jesus immediately. And that's what we see throughout the Gospels. We see people coming into contact with Jesus and having largely one of two responses— they either reject him outright, as we see many of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and people like that. And the other response is people come across him and they see what he does and they hear what he says and they just come to an immediate understanding that this is the Messiah and they put their faith in him. And so what we see is people introduced to the ministry, the actual ministry of the Messiah and the name of the Messiah and they're coming to faith in him. But it's not a justification faith. It's a sanctification faith. Derrickson, in his paper, highlights this. It says, when eternal life appears in this section, in the prologue, in the beginning, 
It's described rationally in terms of knowing the Father rather than something possessed. Derrickson goes on to say, Jesus' deity is introduced in the opening verses, and though recognition of Jesus' deity is integral to justifying faith, it is equally integral to sanctifying faith. Jesus' deity is an issue to be understood by those who are already justified if they are to know Jesus as the apostles came to know him long after they were justified. A lot of times in John 20, 28, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, most commentators will say that's when he got saved. That's when he was justified. And Derrickson says it's inappropriate to say that Thomas was unregenerate before this time. Jesus makes plain in his prayer to his father that Thomas is already regenerate. He is one of the men the Father has already given Jesus out of the world. And he quotes, uh, he references John 17, 6 and 17, 12 there. Another example, his words in John 10, 27 through 30 become meaningless, where Jesus is obviously talking about sheep that already belong to him, not that will someday be given to him, so that in the gospel we have regenerate men whose understanding of Jesus needs growth for them to become effective in their service to him. And Derrickson throws the disciples into that group later in his paper. The disciples fit this group. They come to the light, Jesus, in the first chapters of the gospel and remain in the light as they follow him. But their faith still must grow as they come to understand him more fully. The disciples were already justified when they first came to the light. They were Old Testament saints, after all. The faith that grows is not justifying faith. The faith that grows is sanctifying faith. Good points that Derrickson brings out, and they are little, if ever, written about. This whole perspective of the believing remnant having to come to Jesus and recognize him as a fulfillment of the Messiah that they already believe in, that they've already been saved by. And they say, you know what? I believe in a Messiah, and I believe you are that person. That recognition of Jesus and coming to faith and belief in Jesus was not justification. It was a step of sanctification. And it was only for that generation. And it never applied to any other generation, not before or after. I'll conclude with this thought from Derrickson's paper. He says, in Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Those words are spoken to regenerate men people that have already been justified, in other words. He continues, all believe in him and are identified a few minutes later as belonging to him in John 17, 6 through 19. Yet it is they who are asking him to show them the way to the Father, John 14, 1 through 10. This is a groundbreaking perspective. This is going to cause you to reread the Gospels from a brand new vantage point. The fact that most of the people that come in contact with Jesus already have a saving faith and are not being evangelized to, they're being told that Jesus is the Messiah in which they already believe. He fulfills the position and they come to faith in him and they follow him. So let's take some time, since this podcast is about John chapter 1, or it's supposed to be at least, 
Let's go back to John chapter one. I invite you just to have it open as we walk through it. And I mentioned earlier the herky-jerky nature of it, and I'm just going to kind of outline that in a little more detail. Notice uh, verses one through five. They're kind of its own pericope. A pericope is just uh, the section headings that we've added later to identify uh, hopefully uh, unique thoughts. And they do a decent job here because the pericope ends in the NASB at least, ends after verse five. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Okay, very familiar. Talks about being with God in the beginning. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's now connecting this word concept, this logos concept, which was prominent in Greek uh, philosophical thought uh, from at least the intertestamental period on. So John is bringing in uh, some Greek understanding of what logos might be, connecting that to Jesus, uh, the person of Jesus, calling it the light of men. There's a great light, dark motif throughout philosophy and throughout the Bible as well. All great literature has light, dark motifs. And the light shines in the darkness, verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then we stop that, and then we get into the witness of John. Now, let me just ask you a question. Why would you stop talking about Jesus, the Logos, the light of the world, coming into the world, and then stop and talk about John the Baptist? I'm going to suggest to you, I'll give you the answer right up front, I'm going to suggest to you that it's because there are a lot of John the Baptist followers that didn't know who Jesus was, but they've heard John the Baptist preach. They got baptized by John the Baptist, and they needed to know that John the Baptist wasn't just talking about himself or something in the far future, but that he was talking about somebody that was coming pretty quickly and had come by the time John wrote this. And that's exactly what we see in John's gospel came a man sent by God, whose name was John. And I can just imagine the original readers, there was a whole group of original readers, when they get their hands on this and they hear it, they're like, oh yeah, John, do you guys remember that one feast we went to Israel and we went out in the wilderness and he baptized? Oh, that was a prophet of God. And that's what John, the author here is saying. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. Oh, well, who was he talking about then? John, the author, is weaving together for the people that already were faithful, remnant Old Testament saints, who it is and what it is John the Baptist was doing and who it is he was pointing to. And the John the Baptist section goes from uh, verse 6 to verse 13. And then we get back to the word in 14 through 18. The word became flesh. Which, by the way, if you're not familiar with uh, philosophy, the idea of the logos is a, a kind of an all-knowing spiritual entity. But the main characteristic of the logos in Greek philosophy was that it was non-physical, non-corporeal. And so what John is doing here is he's taking an idea that already is floating around in Greek philosophy. He's attaching that logos idea to Jesus, the creator, who was with God in the beginning, right? And then here in verse 14, he gets back to it and he says, and the Logos became flesh. And oh my goodness, talk about rocking people's world back in the first century, especially those out there that were Hellenized Jews or just the Gentile population that was Hellenized. There's a lot of Hellenized Jews that had bought into Greek philosophy that had also grown up Jewish and knew the scriptures and also, a lot of those people were people of faith. And so John is inviting different types of groups in this first chapter that already believe 
in God and are justified. He's inviting them all to become introduced to this person of Jesus, not as an initial faith event, but as a step of sanctification. And this happens throughout the entire gospel. We're going to wrap up with this in 19 through 34. What you're reading is John, the author of this gospel, is quoting what John the Baptist said so that his followers throughout the world would have the permission to follow Jesus as the Christ. And you might just be saying, well, Greg, how do you know that these people even exist? How do you know that there are so many of them? Wouldn't they have just all seen Jesus when he showed up and got baptized himself? And that's not the way John the Baptist's ministry was working. It was likely for a long period of time. And people were coming and going and hearing the message, getting baptized, and then leaving because they had a life to get back to. We get a glimpse at the end of John chapter 1 of some of John the Baptist's followers who got to meet Jesus immediately. And they became disciples. But that's not the case for the majority of John the Baptist's followers. The majority of his followers weren't even there when Jesus showed up. And they went back to their homes. And some of them never returned back to Jerusalem because sometimes that was a -a once-in-a-lifetime event that you'd get to go to Jerusalem for an in-gathering feast. So how do I know that there's so many of these people out there? Well, we meet them in the book of Acts. We're introduced to these people, and the commentators generally don't know how to handle these people when they show up. And the example I'll give you right now is this. Turn to Acts 19. Paul passes through the upper country and comes to Ephesus and found some disciples. Okay, well, this is interesting because you immediately think they're disciples of Jesus, but that's not the case. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that is probably an unfortunate translation in the NASB. Probably better to understand their response. No, we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has been given. So it's not a complete ignorance about the Holy Spirit, but whether it had been given or not. Verse 3, and he said, and to what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. Here's a group of people in Ephesus who were baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. And then there's some new information. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, what's their response? Now, if they're a believing group of guys, Old Testament saints, you would expect what kind of a response? Immediate acceptance. When they heard this, oh, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is not justification happening here. These people already believe. And here comes the shocker. These events likely happened 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. For 30 years, 12 men in Ephesus kept preaching the message of repentance that they had heard from John the Baptist 30 years earlier and living in faith that a Messiah would come. And here, as a part of his missionary journey, Paul comes in contact with this group and says, his name's Jesus. And they believe, and they're baptized. 
and they speak in tongues. And it's not their initial justification. It's a sanctification experience. In the next episode, we're going to move on to chapter two, but not before we check in with the end of chapter one and the calling of the first disciples. There's a wedding theme in the book of John. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's a wedding theme that begins at the end of chapter one, and we find it again at the beginning of chapter two. And there's a lot going on, and it's going to cause you to rethink the scriptures. <laughs>